ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله so we're in the section regarding ghusl, the Islamic rulings regarding how to do the ghusl, and the ghusl is the Islamic ritual bathing. Because we know that Islamically, the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam told us about all aspects of our lives. Islam has come to us as a guide for all aspects of our lives, including purification, how a Muslim is supposed to stay clean and pure, We've already looked at, I think, regarding how a Muslim uses the bathroom and how you are supposed to clean yourself, your hands, etc. and make sure your garments stay clean. Islam has come as a guide for all aspects of our lives. And that's why Allah told us in the Quran, Al-Yawma, that on this day, Allah said to the Messenger Muhammad, وسلم, I have completed for you your religion. Allah completed this whole religion of Islam, clarifying to us how to live our lives upon Islam as good Muslims and so there is guidance in everything including what we are talking about now how the Muslim makes his ritual bathing how to do the ghusl the ritual bathing and in particular this week we are on the chapter regarding some details about the women in terms of their hair. If a woman has her hair tied up or in plaits, then how does she do the ritual Islamic bathing, the ghusl? Does she have to untie all of those plaits? Or can she do it with the plaits still tied up? Some of those details are what we are going to discuss today. Because you remember the last time we were talking about the general description of how a Muslim does the ghusl. And you remember about washing the hands, pouring the water over the head, doing the ablution, and then pouring the water over all of the body to make sure that it covers all of the skin. So today we come to this hadith 
this prophetic narration of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam from Umm Salama radiyallahu anha qalat qultu ya rasulallah inni mraatun ashuddu sha'ra ra'si afa'anquduhu lighuslil janabah wa fi riwayah walil haydah فقال لا إنما يكفيك أن تحفي على رأسك أو تحفي على رأسك ثلاث حفيات رواه مسلم. In this hadith, Um Salama she says that I asked the Messenger of Allah, O Messenger of Allah, I am a woman who ties up my hair. So do I have to open it all up for the ghusl of Janabah? And in one version, for the ghusl of the menses after the period finishes. Because as we know, Islamically, a woman when she finishes her monthly cycle, then she has to take a full bath, the ritual Islamic bath, the ghusl. Faqal. So the messenger said, لا إنما يكفيك أن تحفي على رأسك ثلاث حفيات. The messenger said, no, it is enough that you simply pour three times upon your head. We'll have a look at this narration now section by section. In the narration, Um Salama رضي الله عنها, she says, O messenger of Allah, I am a woman who ties up her hair. أشد ظفر رأسي والظفر معناه الجدل وهو إدخال الشعر بعضه في بعض وجعله جدايل يدخل بعضها في بعض حتى تصبح كهيئة الحبل. Basically, she was saying that I tie my hair in plaits. I tie my hair into plaits and this as Sheikh Al-Fawzan says is a well-known habit amongst the women a well-known method amongst the women to tie their hair into plaits so Um Salama she used to tie her hair into plaits as Sheikh Al-Fawzan says it is permissible therefore as we can see that a woman is allowed to place her hair into plaits that is permissible and it is also permissible for a woman to tie her hair with one knot if she chooses not to do plaits, just to put all of the hair together into one knot at the back, permissible, no problem either. And it is permissible, all of those different methods are permissible, depending on the sheikh says, the habits of the women of that particular country and land. Perhaps in certain countries it is the habit that they always put the hair into plaits, so be it. Perhaps in another country that is not well known, they just tie their hair up at the back, so be it. 
He says the only thing that is not permissible is for the women to tie, to put all of their hair together in a knot or a bun at the top of the head. It is not permissible to tie the hair together into a bun, into a knot on the top of the head. The Sheikh gives an example as though the woman then has the appearance of two heads. You have the head and then you have this bun on top which is like another head. The woman has the appearance of two heads. A small head on top of another head. That's what the bun would look like on top. That is impermissible to have that and to do that. It is impermissible Islamically to tie the hair in a knot or in a bun at the top of the head. And that is mentioned in a hadith. There is a hadith where the messenger mentioned about the women of the hellfire. And one of their characteristics that was highlighted is that their heads are like the humps of camels. The, the bun tied up on top of the head is like the hump of a camel. That is the example mentioned in this particular hadith. فَالْمَرْأَةِ أَلَّتِي تَجْمَعُ شَعْرَهَا مِنْ أَعْلَى وَتَعْمَلْ لَهُ رِبَاطًا حَتَّى يُصْبِحَ كَبِيرًا وَكَأَنَّ الْمَرْأَ لَهَا رَأْسًا رَأْسُهَا الْحَقِيقِ الْمَخْلُوقِ وَرَأْسْ مُصْطَنِعْ مَعْمُولْ مِنَ الشَّعْرِ يُشْبِهُ سِنَامِ الْوَقْتِ So what is impermissible then is for a woman to tie up all of her hair into a bun at the top which gives the appearance then of a of a head on top of her head or the example of the hump of a camel that is impermissible for a woman to do the Sheikh says this indicates, and of course this goes back to the customs of the women of every land and country, but at the time of the Prophet wasallam, it indicates that the women did not used to leave their hair just open. That wasn't their custom. Their custom was to put it into plaits and to tie it up into plaits. Their custom was not to just leave it open and loose. But of course, as the Sheikh said, that returns back to the customs of the people. It's not like it's a sunnah to put your hair into plaits and it's not a sunnah to leave it open. Both of them are permissible returning back to the customs of the land. But it just so happens that at the time of the messenger, their custom for the women was that they would tie it up into plaits and they wouldn't leave their hair open and loose. So Umm Salama came to ask the Prophet ﷺ that if her hair is tied up like that and it is known 
It is known that when you tie your hair up into plaits like that, then it takes some time and it takes some effort, especially if it's going to be perfect. It takes a while and skill and time. So now it becomes something time-consuming to have to open up all of those plaits to do the ghusl, then retie all of those plaits after drying the hair. So Umm Salama came to the messenger to ask him about this problem. She said, I plait my hair up. So do I have to open it all up to do the ghusl? Whether it is the ghusl of the janaba from the sexual impurity or the ghusl of the hayd, the menstrual uh, impurity. يعني هل يجب عليها أن تنقض شعرها المشدود إذا أرادت الاغتسال من أجل وصول الماء إلى داخله وأنها تتركه مشدودا Normally we know that the rule is when you do the ghusl the water has to get to the skin every part of your body that's why Umm Salama came asking the messenger because if your hair is tied up in plaits then it's very possible a large portion of your hair the water isn't going to get in there it's not going to get into the plaits it's not maybe going to get into certain areas so she came to ask the messenger what to do in that circumstance does she have to open it all up or not استفسرت عن ذلك من النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم فقال لها لا so the messenger said to her no no يعني لا تنقضيه وإنما يكفيك أن تحفي عليه ثلاث حفيات يكفيك أن تسكبي الماء على رأسك بملء كفيك ثلاث مرات the messenger said to her no if your hair is all plaited up like that, then you don't need to open up all of those plaits for the ghusl. You can leave it tied up in those plaits as it is. And you simply get a handful of water and pour it all over your head three times. Get a handful of water and pour it all over your head with your hair still in the Plat, three times get the water and pour it all over your head and that is sufficient. That it is not an obligation to open up all of the plaits to then get the water right in everywhere throughout all of the hair. If it is tied up in those plaits, you can leave them and simply pour water over your head, on your head three times. Here a Shaykh Al-Fawzan now goes into a bit more detail about this hadith and he says the first point of benefit to be taken and once again it is the same point of benefit the Shaykh repeats over and over and over again. If you go through Bulugh Al-Maram from the beginning and there are six or seven chapters to this explanation of the Shaykh. How many times he mentions this same benefit, which is min To return to the people of knowledge 
and ask them about the affairs that are complicated for you in regards to your religion. Returning to the people of knowledge and asking them. This indicates why it is so important to return back to the scholars. One, because the Sheikh constantly mentions that as a benefit in multiple different narrations just in this book, let alone from his other works. But on top of that, what is this book we are studying? What topic is it? Is it Aqeedah? Is it Seerah? Is it Fiqh? Is it, what is the topic? Ahkam, Fiqh. We're looking at the rulings of the religion. We're looking at Fiqh, basically. We're not really talking about the issues of returning back to the scholars, etc. This is fiqh. What are the rulings? And yet, despite the theme here being about fiqh and the rulings and how to do this act of worship, how to do that act of worship, still the sheikh constantly makes the point of highlighting the importance of returning back to the people of knowledge. Because with these rulings of the religion, with these ahkam, uh, this fiqh, where are you going to learn it from? The Quran, the Sunnah, with the understanding of the Salaf of this Ummah. And all of that through returning back to the scholars. Fas'alu ahla dhikri in kuntum la ta'lamun. Ask the people of knowledge if you do not know. There is a story, as Shaykh Al-Ithaymeen mentioned, I've probably mentioned it before. As Shaykh Al-Ithaymeen, he mentions a story about a scholar. Maybe he was talking about himself or some scholar. And he said this particular Muslim scholar was sitting in a restaurant once, and the waiter who came to serve him was not a Muslim. And the waiter tried or wanted to challenge this Muslim scholar. So when he came to serve him or get the menu or whatever, he says to this scholar, so you're Muslim. You guys, you claim that your Quran is a guidance for everything. You claim that your Quran is a guidance for everything. So that scholar said to him, absolutely. Absolutely, it's a guidance for everything. So then that waiter, thinking that he has the upper hand on this scholar and he's going to refute him, he says, okay, so this meal that you've ordered, which I have brought to you now there, this meal, explain to me in the Quran where it tells you how to cook this meal. You claim the Quran is a guidance for everything. Where in the Quran, in your holy book, does it tell you how to cook this meal, the ingredients, the times, oven mark, uh, gas mark, and all the business? Where does it tell you? So then that scholar said, absolutely, it does. It does. So now the waiter's thinking maybe, what's he talking about? The waiter knows that there's no way that in the Quran it tells you how to cook this particular meal. 
But the scholar tells him, yes, absolutely, the Quran does tell us how to cook this meal. The Quran tells us, فَاسْأَلُوا أَهْلَ الذِّكْرِ إِن كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ The Quran tells us, ask the people of knowledge if you do not know. So if you do not mind, call the chef over for a minute. Because he is going to ask the chef how to cook this meal upon the guidance of the Quran. Ask the people of knowledge if you do not know. He says that's what the Quran tells us. So to answer your question, yes, from the guidance of the Quran, I will know how to cook this meal. I'm going to ask the people of knowledge regarding it, which is your chef in this case. That was just a point as Shaykh Al-Athameen was using an example to highlight that the Quran, the Sunnah, this religion of Islam is indeed a guidance for all of our affairs. And that we return back to the people of knowledge. Obviously here we're talking about the scholars. Returning back to the scholars of religion. The scholars of Islam. Those scholars that have existed throughout every century. And they will continue to do so. It is not like we have run out of scholars ever. Throughout history in every generation. You see the big scholars. The ulama of Ahlul Sunnah. And to this day they are alive and you see them, the likes of a Shaykh Al-Fawzan himself. A Shaykh Al-Fawzan himself is the likes of those whom we return to and ask if we do not know, ask about the affairs of our religion. You have uh, the Mufti, a Shaykh Abdul Aziz Al-Shaykh. You have still a Shaykh Rabia bin Hadi, Hafizahullah. You have still a Shaykh Abdul Muhsin Al-Abbad, a Shaykh Ali Nasr Al-Faqih. They are still alive. They are still alive and there are those who are teaching actively currently to the likes of Sheikh Abdullah al-Bukhari and Sheikh Abdullah al-Zafiri and others. The scholars, they are there. The educated ones in religion who have spent not just one or two or ten or twenty but fifty or sixty or seventy or eighty years, some of them, in this religion. Learning and teaching. That's why when you go to the lessons of a Sheikh Abdul Muhsin Al-Abbad in his 90s now, teaching for how many years? 70 years perhaps. You go to his lessons now and they mention a hadith to him and rarely does he not know that chain of narration. Knows everybody in the chain of narration. Yes, this person was such and such and he was such and such and he was such and such and he knows them all. From 70 years of reading and reading and teaching, 70 years of coming across these hadith again and again. And not just that, but research and analysis and writing and books and authorship. That's why the Shaykh, he highlights so much the importance of returning to the people of knowledge, the scholars. So he's and asking them وَسُؤَالُهُمْ عَمَّا أَشْكَلَ فِي أُمُورِ الدِّينِ And asking them for the affairs that are confusing or unknown to you regarding the religion. وَأَنَّ الْإِنسَانَ إِذَا أَشْكَلَ عَلَيْهِ شَيْءٌ مِنْ أُمُورِ دِينِهِ فَإِنَّهُ لَا يَسْكُتُ عَلَى جَهَلٍ And that if a person 
is ignorant about something regarding their religion, then you don't just sit there quietly and remain ignorant. But you ask, And don't just start guessing. He says, Don't just start guessing yourself, thinking you can make your conclusion. This hadith says X, Y, Z. That seems to indicate that you can do this and do that. MashaAllah. Don't start making your own guesswork on things and what you think this narration indicates or what you think that narration indicates. But rather return back to the scholars, those who are firmly grounded and those who have an understanding of what it indicates and what it does not. Because it is never just about one narration by itself. It is never just about one narration by itself. To understand the sunnah, you have to have a comprehensive recognition of the sunnah. Because one hadith, its rulings may be dependent on another hadith somewhere else. And the rulings of that one together with this one may both be dependent upon a particular ayah of the Quran. It's all connected the rulings of the religion so once again the sheikh he highlights and makes that point regarding returning back to the people of knowledge so he says allah has obligated upon the one who doesn't know to, re- to ask the people of knowledge and not to remain ignorant. You remember the narration of Aisha radiallahu anha. She said, نِعْمَ نِسَاءَ الْأَنصَارِ لَمْ يَكُنْ يَمْنَعْهُنَّ حَيَاؤُهُنَّ مِنْ أَنْ يَسْأَلْنَ عَنْ أُمُورِ دِينِهِنَّ She said, how good are the women of the Ansar that their shyness never prevented them from asking about the affairs of their religion. It's good for a woman especially to have shyness. But she said the shyness never prevented them from learning about their religion, from asking about their religion. And that's why the scholars, they say, be aware of the two memes, the letter meme in the Arabic language. Be aware of the two memes. One meme, they say, al-mustahi, the one who is shy, mustahi, begins with a meme. They say, beware of being shy in terms of learning your religion. Because the one who is too shy, then he ends up not asking about things when he doesn't understand, he doesn't ask. His shyness prevents him from asking, and so he remains upon his ignorance. And misguidance perhaps even doing things wrong because he's too shy to ask and find out. And the second meme the scholars they say be careful of is the arrogant one. The shy one does not learn his religion they say and the arrogant one does not learn his religion. The one who is too arrogant to ask too arrogant to come, to sit, to ask, too arrogant to attend, to listen, thinking himself to be better 
So then that type of individual does not learn either. So they say, beware of the two memes, the mustahi and the mustakbir. The one who is shy and the one who is arrogant. The second benefit the Shaykh mentions here, in fact, we've covered it now, it's exactly that. He says that the shyness of a woman does not prevent her from asking about the religious affairs. Especially the women, they have certain affairs that are specific to them in regards to the monthly cycle and what is connected to that and affairs of pregnancy and birth and many issues. But the shyness does not prevent a woman from learning how to worship her Lord properly. Thirdly, there is an evidence the Sheikh says, Ala anna that the women at the time of the Prophet وسلم, they used to have long hair. It's a benefit that can be derived from this hadith. We know that they must have had reasonably long hair because you require reasonable length hair to be able to put it into proper plaits. You gotta have some length of hair to make some decent plaits out of it. So the fact that Um Salama had proper plaits indicates that she had long hair and that this was the tradition of the women. And the Sheikh says that is a beauty for the woman. It is the beauty of a woman to have longer hair. And that's why the women are not allowed to cut their hair so short that it resembles the hair of men. Now the disbelieving women you see the haircut, some of them with very short hair, nothing like the, the length of men. These are certain haircuts and certain fashions that exist. But that is impermissible Islamically for a woman to have hair so short that it is the length of what a man would have. And a man is allowed to grow his hair up until roughly to the shoulders, to the earlobe shoulders in between that kind of length. Therefore, indicating that really a woman should not cut her hair shorter than that. It shouldn't be shorter than that because then you could end up being resemblant to the haircut of a man. It is not permissible for the women to resemble the men in their haircuts. Therefore, it is not permissible to go overly short in cutting their hair. Otherwise, whatever else they want to do in terms of the length of their hair or the style of their hair, as long as it does not imitate the disbelieving women, it is permissible for them to do so, along with the uh, agreement of the husband. <laughs> and the Sheikh says, <laughs> He says, they never used to mess about with their hair. As women, they do these days messing about with their hair, cutting it here and cutting it there. All these fashions that they have these days now. He says, They never used to mess about with their hair, hair like this. As some of the women, they mess about cutting here, cutting there, and having this fringe here and this there and all these things. So the ones who do these overly exaggerated hairstyles, then that, as we said, would be an imitation of the disbelieving women. And it is not permissible to have these exaggerated, fashionable cuts with cutting here, cutting there, fringe here, this type, that type. Excessiveness in that nature, where it then becomes resemblant to the 
haircuts of the non-Muslims is not permissible. فَالْمَرْأَ تَتْرُكُ شَعْرَ رَأْسِهَا وَلَا تَقُصُّهُ إِلَّا إِذَا كَثُرَ عَلَيْهَا وَشَقَّ عَلَيْهَا تَرْجِيلُهُ وَمُرَاعَاتُهُ أو أنها فقيرة لا تملك مؤونة إصلاحه ودهنه فعند ذلك لا بأس أن تخففه وأن تقص منه He says normally the default is that women let their hair grow and that you cut it when there's a need becomes a bit too long you want to cut it slightly you want to cut it a bit shorter no problem or it's difficult to look after it perhaps certain women cannot look after longer hair properly so they cut it slightly or perhaps he says and these are kinds of examples that many of our people now don't understand. But he says, maybe a woman is in poverty, in poverty, and she doesn't have the means to afford, uh, you know, the, the different soaps or whatever it might be, and the shampoos these days, to look after her long hair. So she cuts it a bit shorter. Because she cannot afford to get the shampoo she requires. She cannot afford to get the the other chemicals and these things that you use in your hair she cannot afford to buy them and otherwise without them her long hair becomes a problem so from poverty she cuts it a bit shorter so there are reasons that a woman may cut her hair a bit shorter but you do not cut it so short that it resembles the hair of the men or cut it in a style that is from the styles of the non-believers قصصنا من شعورهن لأنهن بعد وفاته صلى الله عليه وسلم قد حرم عليهن الزواج فهن زوجاته في الدنيا والآخرة and it's mentioned in the seerah how some of the wives of the prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم cut their hair and in particular in the seerah it mentions after he died some of them did cut their hair لذا احتاج بعضهن بعد وفاته إلى قص شعور رؤوسهن من أجل تخفيف المؤونة ودفع المشقة لأنه لسنا بحاجة إلى التجمل به لعدم تطلعهن إلى الأزواج And after the Prophet وسلم died his wives who he was married to when he died those wives of his afterwards they could not marry again they are his wives in this world and in the afterlife. So then it is mentioned, there was not a great need for them to make sure that their hair was at the pinnacle of its beauty thereafter. And so some of them, they did cut their hair somewhat uh, to make it easier to look after. So the point is, it is permissible to cut the hair for the women as long as it is not as short as the men or resemblant of the non-believers. صلى الله عليه وسلم يوفرن شعورهن ولا يقصرن منه إلا عند ضرورة والحاجة لا كما تفعله النساء في هذه الأيام من اتباع الموضأ حيث إنهن يقلدن الممثلات والمغنيات غربيات كنا أو عربيات The Sheikh says that it's not uh, you know the women at that time they would allow their hair to grow and it's not like these hairstyles that the women do now, cutting it in all types of fashions to imitate these celebrities, basically. To imitate all of these different types of celebrities and singers, uh, whatever they may be. Hmm. The fourth point of benefit here, Dalilun ala annahu la yalzamul mar'a naqda sha'riha min ajli ghusl min al-janaba. This is the point. That if a woman has her hair properly tied up, 
it is properly tied up in plaits and those types of things that take effort and time to put on if it is tied up in that way this narration indicates to us that it is not a requirement for a woman who has her hair tied up in that complicated way to then untie the whole thing it is not a requirement but remember here we're talking about the woman who has her hair properly tied up in those plaits not just a woman who's got a, a what do you call it the bubbles and things just just tied up in a bubble or a clip that's there's no complication there there's no difficulty there but here it's talking about the women who have put it together into a plot into a complicated effort consuming type of thing then that is not a requirement to untie the whole thing rather as we have seen from the narration it is a difficulty to do that and so therefore the religion removes that difficulty from a woman in that scenario and allows the woman to simply pour the water on top of the head this narration was specifically on the first narration about the ghusl from janaba from the sexual impurity there is another narration we mentioned that also stated this could be done from the ghusl after the menses however that one is differed about a lot more so far the woman whose hair is intricately tied up in plaits is not required to undo the whole thing she can simply pour three handfuls of water onto her head when doing the ghusl from the janaba from the sexual impurity what about then the issue of the woman who has her hair intricately tied up in those plaits and she needs to do the ghusl after finishing her monthly cycle can she leave it as well and just pour three handfuls on top there's a bigger difference of opinion about that here there are different opinions there are three opinions regarding whether a woman is allowed to do that for the ghusl after her monthly cycle the first opinion the first opinion says no a woman who is making her ghusl after the period has to undo all of her hair open it all up she has to open it all up not allowed to leave it in the plaits and just pour water over it if she's making the ghusl after her period she must open it all up that is the first opinion and one of the reasons they give for that why would they say that from the janaba one she can leave it tied up but from the period or, or for example after giving birth the postpartum bleeding that in those cases no she's got to open it up for the rulings to be different there must be something different about the two scenarios this is how they work fiqh right now we're talking about a woman in both cases we're talking about a woman requiring ghusl in both cases so far the same the only difference is in one case it was a ghusl from janaba from the sexual impurity in the other case it's the ghusl from the monthly cycle or postpartum bleeding 
And that's where they've differed. Why have they differed? What's different about those two scenarios? Without narrations. In terms of what is different between the... Exactly. That is one of the reasons why some of the scholars say it's okay in the Janabah. Leave it tied up. You don't have to open up all that intricate plots. But in the monthly ghusl, you got to open it up. They say because the monthly ghusl after the period is only once a month. Whereas the ghusl after the Janabah could be, as mentioned by the brother, frequently. That could be more frequent. So it requires more occasions and it could be, and it could be uh, several uh, occasions in the month. It could be several occasions in the week perhaps. So if that was the case now and the woman always plaits her hair, then that becomes a difficulty if she has to unplait on such a regular basis, wash it all, dry it all, plait it up again, then unplait it again, do all of that on a regular and consistent basis multiple times maybe in the week let alone the month perhaps then it's a difficulty whereas with the period it's only once in the month so they said with the period no you gotta open it all up it's only once a month but with the janaba okay that could be multiple times in the month could be several several times in the month then okay the the ease is given to you there that is one of the reasons and because of the narration as you mentioned there is a narration where the prophet told aisha that she has to undo all of her hair open it all up for the ghusl from her monthly period there is a narration of that nature and that is the opinion this first opinion is taken by Al-Imam Ahmad and Al-Imam Malik. So opinion number one is that a woman can leave those intricate plaits as they are when making ghusl from Janaba, but she must open them all up. No ease is given when it comes to the ghusl after menstruation or postpartum bleeding after giving birth etc the second opinion or before we get to the second opinion as we're going to get to the second and third opinion obviously other scholars believe that even after the monthly cycle a woman who has plaits intricately tied together can leave them as they are don't have to open them they reply to al-imam ahmad and al-imam malik by saying to them that this narration that you're using that the messenger said to aisha radiallahu anha to open up her hair for that ghusl that ghusl she was making in that narration wasn't even the ghusl for her monthly period they say, look and examine that narration. It was the ghusl generally for going into ihram. It wasn't about her monthly cycle, that ghusl. So they reply by saying, that isn't there for an evidence. 
لأنها كانت حاجة وقد أحرمت بالعمرة ثم حاضت قبل أن تصل إلى البيت وشق ذلك عليها فقال لها النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم افعلي ما يفعل الحاج غير أن لا تضوفي بالبيت حتى تظهري فلما جاء يوم عرفة وهي لا تزال حائضا أمرها النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم تحرمها بالحج وتدخله على العمرة وتصير قارنة بدل أن كانت متمتعة إذا فالأمر بنقض شعرها إنما هو من أجل التنظيف للإحرام وليس من أجل الطهارة من الحيض فإن الحيض لم يرتفع عنها بعد That narration about Aisha radiyallahu anha was in the context of when they were in Hajj and it is known that when they were in Hajj the monthly cycle came upon Aisha radiyallahu anha the monthly cycle came upon her when they were in Hajj before they got to the Kaaba and so this was a burden upon Aisha it was a difficult thing upon her she wanted to do all of the rites of course so the messenger said to her do everything that is done in Hajj except the tawaf you can do everything else but not the tawaf then when the day of Arafah came the day of Arafah which would be the ninth of Dhul Hijjah you into your second day of Hajj if you spent the first day in Mina when that day came she was still on her monthly cycle yet hadn't finished yet so then the messenger told her to go into a state of ihram and and put together her umrah with the hajj and to do the ghusl in order to go into the state of ihram from there because if you miss arafah you've missed Hajj, she had to do Arafah. If you miss Arafah, you've missed Hajj. So she had to do Arafah, but she was still on the monthly cycle. So the messenger told her to do a ghusl and go into Ihram. So she catches Arafah. But that ghusl that she was told to do, was it because her monthly cycle had finished? Or was it to make sure that she catches Arafah? Catches Arafah, she was still on her monthly cycle on her menses. So that ghusl's got nothing to do with menses. That ghusl was simply to clean yourself and be as pure as possible when going into ihram. And so when she was told to open up her hair and do the full ghusl, it was about ihram for hajj, not about the menses. She was still on her menses. So that's how they refute that opinion. The second opinion then are the scholars who made that refutation because they are the scholars who say that she does not have to open up the hair. That she doesn't have to open up those locks, those uh, plaits, those intricately tied up the hair. She doesn't have to open that up. Neither from Janaba when you're making the ghusl which is already mentioned and agreed but neither does she have to do that from the menses or from the postpartum bleeding she doesn't have to do it for any of those cases in all cases she can leave the plaits as they are and simply pour the water over it that is the opinion of the Shafi'is and the opinion of the Hanafis 
that you can do that. A woman who has her hair intricately tied up in plaits, making it a difficulty to untie all of that and then do the ghusl and then tie it back, that she's allowed, she's given the ease of leaving the plaits and doing the ghusl and just pouring three handfuls of water over the hair, even if that ghusl is for the menses or for the end of the postpartum bleeding. That is the second opinion. And the third opinion, وَهُوَ مَرْوِيٌّ عَنْ أَحْمَدُ وَجَمَاعَ مِنْ أَهْلِ الْعِلْمِ أَنَّ نَقْضَهُ لِأَجْلِ الْحَيْضِ أَوْ لِأَجْلِ النِّفَاسِ مُسْتَحَبُ وَلَيْسَ بِوَاجِبُ The third opinion of some of the scholars, and this is mentioned from Al-Imam Ahmed again, and some of the other scholars, that when it comes to the menses, the monthly cycle, when the woman finishes, or the postpartum bleeding, that it is mustahab. She should open up all of the hair and do the ghusl with the full hair, but not that it is obligatory, not that it is wajib. So three opinions. The first one saying it is obligatory for the woman making the ghusl after the menses or postpartum bleeding to open up her hair fully when doing the ghusl. And they said, the hadith of Aisha is the proof. Even though the second opinion scholars reject that as an evidence. Because they say that was regarding the ghusl for ihram, not regarding the ghusl for menses. Another reason the first group of scholars gave was that because the period only occurs once a month. It's only once a month you have to do that. So there's no difficulty untying it once a month. But as for the janabah, the, the impurity after the intimacy, then that is, it could be on a more regular basis. And so the difficulty does come into it. When we were in Medina University, in the Arabic Institute, in the Shu'bah, you have the two years of Arabic language program, and then the four years of the degree itself. When we were in the Arabic language program, there was a brother once, one of the students in our class, I forgot from where, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, somewhere. And uh, he used to come in every morning. MashaAllah, he had nice hair. He used to comb it. It was wet, wet and combed. Nice every morning, longish kind of hair. Like as we say these days, gelled up and everything nice. So the teacher used to uh, joke with him. It was in winter time. He used to joke with him and everybody, of course, understood what the purpose of the joke was. He used to say to him, listen, listen, my son. Don't do ghusl too much in winter. Yani, he's not just talking about don't do ghusl too much in winter. He's talking about don't do what necessitates from you too much ghusl in winter. Just take it easy. Don't do too much ghusl in winter. Don't put yourself into that situation of having to do ghusl and wet hair and it's cold outside in winter. So the point here is with the women, if it was something repetitive, then it is an ease that is given. The final benefit mentioned here, al-hadith fihi dalilun ala qa'idat raf'il haraj fi shari'a al-islamiyyah. There is a principle Islamically that says when some difficulty or burden is upon a person, then the, the shari'a allows some leeway, gives you some room for maneuver to remove that burden from a person 
So now if it was going to be the rule that a woman has to untie her hair, those plaits and those intricate uh, uh, dealings with the hair, if all of that has to be opened up every time and washed then closed up and it would become a burden upon the woman and a difficulty upon her, especially if it is long hair. Especially if it is long hair going perhaps all the way down to your waist or thereabouts and all of that tied up into plaits. We're not talking about plaits only up to the shoulders, maybe much longer. All the way down, much further, and all of that long hair untie all of those plaits. Then it can be a burden, and so the sharia allows ease in those affairs. What we've therefore learnt is after the janaba, then according to all of them generally, it is permissible for the woman to leave the plaits as they are. But remember, we're talking about difficulty. If a woman has barely thrown in a couple of little plaits or something, or a couple of little knots or something, that barely take two seconds to open and two seconds to close, then you're not in these rulings. The rulings here are talking about when a woman has intricately tied up her hair and made all types of plaits and knots and long hair, and then to untie all of that may take 20 minutes before you can get in to do the ghusl. That's the kind of scenario where there are intricate, complicated plaits that take effort and time. Not that a woman has put a couple of clips in or something and now you're going to say, well, I don't need to open that. I'm just going to pour the water on. That is not a difficulty. It is not a burden. This is only in the situation of difficulty and burden that a woman can leave her hair tied and knotted up if it is complicated. And as for the period, then you can see there are differences of opinion. One opinion saying you must open it up. One saying you don't have to open it up. And the third saying at the least it is mustahab. So based upon that, the overall conclusion you would come to is that at least, at least it is mustahab. And if you want to take, as we say, al-ihtiyat, the precautionary stance, then that would of course be to open it all up the hair when you're doing the ghusl after the period. Because by doing that, you remove yourself from any difference of opinion. By opening it up and washing it, you're clear. No scholar is going to say anything to you now. But if you leave it, then the Hanbalis and the Malikis are going to say your ghusl was wrong. You didn't open up your hair. So it is better after the period to open up the hair and fully do that ghusl. What time is prayer? 8.58-ish? Alright, we'll stop on that hadith. Are there any questions related to that or unrelated? Sarah? Those three months, they start from uh, the first Eid, where Ramadan finishes. Shawwal is the first month. Then it goes on to the second month. And then the third month is Dhul Hijjah. Shawwal, Dhul Qa'dah, Dhul Hijjah. But Dhul Hijjah, that's the third month. The day of Arafah, which is the ninth day of the third month, you've got to catch Arafah. 
It doesn't mean that you can do it in three months that after Hajj finishes, there are still 20 days left of the month. Hajj finishes on 13th of the Hijjah, which means you still have 17 days left. Somebody could think, let all of them go, let them all finish, then on the last week of the Hijjah, I'll go do Hajj. Impossible. So when it means the three months, yes, those three months after Eid al-Fitr, but on the third month of the Hijjah, you have to catch Arafah. If you miss Arafah, you go the next day, Arafah, the day and night, all gone, then you've missed Hajj for that year. No, 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 no. What it means is, so when you finish Ramadan, Ramadan is the ninth month of the Islamic calendar. Eid al-Fitr is on the first day of the month of Shawwal, the 10th month of the Islamic calendar. Then you have the 11th month of the Islamic calendar, Dhul Qi'dah. Then you have the 12th month, Dhul Hijjah. Those three are the months of Hajj. Meaning, if a person is doing the Mutamatti' Hajj, the Mutamatti' type of Hajj, there are three types of Hajj. The Mutamatti' style is that you go and do Umrah, then you finish your Umrah, get out of Ihram, and you're relaxing. Then when Hajj starts in the third month, the Hijjah on the eighth day, you go back into Ihram. This Umrah that you do, you can do it any time from the day of Eid onwards in those three months up until Hajj starts. That Umrah, you could go do it like you celebrate Eid, Eid al-Fitr, next day go do your Umrah with the intention of the Hajj Umrah. That's your Umrah for Hajj. Mutamatti' because Mutamatti' you do an Umrah and you do a Hajj together. So that can be your Umrah as early as then, two and a half months before Hajj. Then you go back when the Hajj starts and do your Hajj. So that is connected now. But if you did your Umrah before Ramadan, now that isn't connected to your Hajj because it's outside of the Hajj months. That's what it means. It doesn't mean you can do the actual Hajj fully in any time. It just means that the Umrah can be done in that time. Or if you're Qarin, you can do the Umrah or, or, or the other types and remain in the Ihram. The Umrah can be done in those times leading and connected to the Hajj. The actual Hajj has to be on those dates. Mina on the 8th, Arafah on the 9th, uh, on the 10th, the stoning, the tawaf, the sacrificing, everything. 11, 12, 13 stoning. Hmm. You mentioned about the bun on the top of the head not allowed. I see a lot of ladies have the bun tight right at the back of the head. Is that all right? As long as it is not resemblant, like the hadith says, of a head upon a head or a hump of a camel. So even just at the back of the head, it's still in gray area, you would say. Right lower down, if you take it right lower down and it is tied at the back at the bottom, so then it's not another bump on top of the head area anywhere, then it's okay. But even at the back of the head, it is still dubious. That is still clearly another bump on top of the head. Your head is like from your forehead up to the top of your neck. So any type of bump on that area would not be suitable. So it would have to be lower down, right lower down into the neck area going beyond there. If you're tying it together into, into bonds or whatever. Hmm. But it's not a necessity to have to do the bun. A woman wants to tie up her hair. There are a million ways and the women know that. A million ways to tie up your hair, mashallah. <laughs> The beehive. 
Ah, yes, yes, yes. In the 60s, in those days, the, the, the beehive, apparently, as it's known as. Obviously, us, 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 us youngsters don't know about these things, but... <laughs> yes, yes, that's true, that's true. They used to have that big... You've seen it in the olden days, the, the huge thing on top of their heads. That's the way they used to do it. So any type of bump on top of a bump is not permissible. Anybody else? Anything else related, unrelated, it's up to you. Yeah, the hair for the men uh, about leaving it all or taking it all. But if you're cutting it, you can cut the hair and it's not an obligation for all of the hair around the head to be the same length. That isn't the obligation. So you could take maybe a little bit more from the sides compared to what you took from the top as long as there is no visible difference as long as there is no visible difference sometimes you go to the haircutters they take just slightly more from the back and the sides because that's where it grows out of your ears etc no problem as long as there is no visible difference nobody will be able to look at you and say ah so you've done like a grade something on the sides and something on the top where there are visible differences is the problem but having a haircut and just saying to the guy just make sure it's nice and short on the edges no problem it's all mixed in and blended in. There's no visible difference in the lengths. That isn't a problem. But the problem is where there are visible differences. They do grade one around the sides and the edges, and then like a grade three at the top. One to three, you can tell a huge difference. Or one to four. One is basically bold. It's, it's hardly anything there. Anything more than one, you're going to see the difference to one. Even one and two, you will see a clear difference. Because one is basically nothing. It's almost bold. After you go completely bold with a blade, a week later is your one. So then, one and then three or one and four, those kinds of things would not be permissible. Because that is a clear difference between the two levels of the hair. So the point is you can do slightly different here and there, but as long as it is mixed and matched in, there is no visible differences in levels and lengths. But where there are visible differences in levels and lengths, that isn't permissible. So you're going to have to be within a very small margin if you do take slightly more of the sides or the back, a very small margin so that it's within the overall level of the hair and it's not visible as a different level. So it's not permissible, all these haircuts. Many people do. Many of the brothers and Muslims, you see them doing them almost shaved from the sides and the back and a big amount of hair at the top. It's not permissible, those kinds of haircuts. And now it's the norm. You go to the barber, you have to explain and explain and explain to not get him to do that. Even after you explain and explain and explain, it's beyond their comprehension. You don't want to do fade and you don't want to do the, the short. And it's, they are so used to those things. It is beyond their comprehension. The hairstyles we used to do 20 years ago when you used to go and they didn't know these things. But now you have to explain and explain. No, don't cut it all off and don't make it all short and you need to blend it in and this has to be close to that and cut it the same length they don't understand they say what kind of hairstyle is that supposed to be what do you want to look like 
Mm. But that's how it is. This is the state of the people. I once went and I barely go to the... Obviously, I cut my hair. But I barely go to the hairdressers. Barely. Uh, uh, and one time I did go. And uh, uh, he did the hair. Or oh, oh, when I went in at the beginning, I think. And I said to him, like a grade two, grade three, whatever it is, get rid of it. And he said, okay, uh, that side and, and the beard side as well? Okay, don't touch the beard. Don't go anywhere near there. Only the head. But this is how it is. They don't understand. the masakin sometimes, you know. Anything else? You have all of these different groups and these different sects as you mentioned and the Prophet told us This ummah will split up into 73 sects all of them in the fire except one How do you distinguish and determine how do you distinguish which one of these groups is the right one? You could do a whole lecture but you could also summarize it into a very simple method the simple method that Al-Imam Ahmed summarized it into at the beginning of Usul Sunnah. At the beginning of Usul Sunnah, Al-Imam Ahmed said, our methodology is to be upon what the companions were upon. He didn't even say to be upon the Quran and the Sunnah and what the companions are upon. He just said what the companions are upon. Why? Because every sect, basically every sect other than the extreme ones, they will all claim to be upon Quran, they will all claim to be upon Sunnah. So then how do you differentiate if the Tablighi, the Kharijji, the, everyone says yes, Quran, Sunnah. You differentiate with that third one. Quran and Sunnah upon the understanding and practice and implementation and methodology of the Salaf of this Ummah. That's what distinguishes. So when the Tablighi comes along and he says, yes, we follow Quran, Sunnah. You say to him, okay, this methodology of yours in Da'wah, 40 days and leaving one person as a spiritual connection, you know they do that? Leave one person as a spiritual connection to Allah in the mosque. Like meditating. Some of the Tablighi groups, they leave one person and he sits in the mosque and he's meditating and he's the connection to Allah. Connection to Allah for this group who's gone out for 40 days. And they mention a story, Allah Alam, that one time the group went out and they were trying to give da'wah, knocking on people's doors, everyone telling them to get lost, nobody listening to them. They came back to the mosque and their spiritual connection guy had fallen <laughs> asleep. So the connection was broken. And so they weren't being successful. But the point is, you say to them, okay, you follow Quran, Sunnah, where upon the methodology of the companions did they do what you do? The Khawarij, they say Quran, Sunnah, okay, good. Where upon the Quran and the Sunnah with the methodology of the Salaf did they go and kill and, and rebel against rulers and spill the blood of the Muslims? The Ikhwanis with all of the things that they do, okay, you claim Quran and Sunnah. But all these things you do, did Abu Bakr do them? Did Umar do them? It all comes down to that implementation of the Quran and the Sunnah with the methodology of the Salaf. That's where it breaks down. All of these other groups, not a single one of them will be able to claim what they are doing is what Abu Bakr was doing and what Umar was doing and Uthman and Ali radiallahu anhum. Because they were not. Their methodologies are not 
the methodologies of the Salaf in implementing the Quran and the Sunnah. Their methodologies are their own ideologies in implementing the Quran and the Sunnah. So that is one simple way to distinguish. Anybody else? Alright, we'll conclude upon that for today then. And inshallah ta'ala, uh, next session in, in four weeks time, we'll continue with the next part. There's only a little bit left now on the ghusl, then we're going to go on to tayammum. Maybe even in next lecture, we'll get on to the tayammum. The proper method of doing tayammum, how you do it, what type of soil you have to use, all of the rulings on tayammum. That is going to be the next chapter, inshallah ta'ala, we'll begin with in the next session. So we'll conclude upon that for today. وصلى الله على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم